0: Ifosa Ojomo is the director of the Global Prosperity Research Group at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, an innovation-focused think tank based in Boston. Ifosa is also on the faculty of Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, where he teaches the course Entrepreneurship and Market Creation in Emerging Markets. Efosa was selected as one of 30 thinkers in the 2020 Thinkers 50 radar list. He researches and writes about how innovation can transform organizations organizations and create inclusive prosperity for many. In January 2019, alongside the late Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen, he published the book The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. Christensen was the world's foremost thinker on disruptive innovation and was a mentor to Afosa. Over the past several years, his work has been published and covered by the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, The Guardian, Quartz, Forbes, Fortune, The World Bank, NPR, and several other media outlets. He speaks and consults often on how organizations can develop a culture that fosters market creating innovations and has presented his work at TED, the Aspen Ideas Festival, the World Bank, Harvard, Yale, Oxford, and at several other conferences and institutions. His TED Talk on Innovation and Corruption has garnered over 2 million views. Afosa graduated from Vanderbilt University with a degree in computer engineering and received his MBA from Harvard Business School. In this episode, he shares with us how to apply disruptive innovation theory to prosperity and poverty. Three types of innovation that we should be thinking about. Efficiency, sustaining, and market creating. And five barriers to consumption which, if you can remove them, can open up new customers, sales, adoption, and markets. Ladies and gentlemen, Ifosa Ojomo. Ifosa, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to have you on the podcast. That's good to be here. So I start this podcast with the same two questions for everyone. The first one, just starts to get to you a little bit
1: personally, if you could complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. If you know me, you know my faith, my family, friends, and maybe food are important to me. <laughs> you know about that, I'll give you four F's. <laughs> Love it. That's your
0: next book, <laughs>
1: the four F's of life. I figured it out here. What kind of food do you cook or do you like? I love all kinds, but I am very partial to Asian food. So Chinese food, Thai food, and obviously I'm originally Nigerian. So I love, love, love Nigerian food. Jollof rice. If your listeners haven't tried Nigerian delicacy, they are missing out. Yes. So this is a podcast on strategy and been deep
0: study of strategy. I ask this question of everyone, I always get a different answer. So whatever you say is right. What's your definition
1: of strategy? First of all, I want to recognize that it's a very loaded word. Strategy it can mean different things to different people. But when I think about strategy very simplistically, I think it is what organizations do. And you could extend that to even individual strategy, right? Like, what's your strategy for life? Well, I could ask you that question or I could just... Observe you for a week, and I could write a one pager on what I think your strategy is. The beauty about that defining strategy as what organizations do or what people do is it helps you separate what people would like to do, what organizations would like to do, what they say they're about, and what they're actually about. And I think that's incredibly important because no organization's website has, you know, we will deliberately not invest in innovation and invest for the short term and not think long term at all and focus on the now so that in another 25, 30 years, we will become obsolete. No organization's mission has that. But when you look at many organizations today, how do they invest? How do they make decisions? What do they do? That's their strategy. So what's coming to mind for me is conscious strategy
0: and subconscious strategy. Because if a strategy is what organizations do, then it could say, let's just look at what they're doing and that's their strategy. Or you could say, this is our strategy, so let's align
1: what we do. Which one is it? What you describe, the second thing you describe, which is, let's define what we want our strategy to do and align our actions to it, is I would think of that as doing sort of an organizational introspection and setting goals for yourself. But that's really not your strategy. When you and I sit down and say, hey, man, let's decide what we're going to do over the next few years, we've set goals for ourselves. Now, we may align our strategy to fit those goals, or we may not, but our strategy lives in our calendars. It lives at where we invest in R and D and who we promote and not promote, who we prioritize. That's ultimately, I think, what most organization strategy is. My mentor, a teacher for many years, the late Clay Christensen, always said, you know, no organization has a deliberate plan to get disrupted, but when you look at how they invest, it's as if they sat down in that conference room and said, Hey guys, in another five or six years, let's make these decisions so that that we will become obsolete and these small startups disrupt us. Nobody does that, right? (laughs) Right. So what was it like
0: getting to work with and write with Clayton Krishnas? How did you come across him and how did interacting with him direct your life until now, at least?
1: Yeah, I mean, Clay was really a godsend, a brilliant mind and just an amazing person. I got the great fortune of my life to get accepted to Harvard Business School for my MBA. And like most other MBAs, we have directionally an idea what we want to do with our lives, but we really don't know. It's why we not law school or math school or engineering school. It's like, well, those guys know what they want to do. <laughs> we are like, ooh. <laughs> Anyways, so second semester, second year of the program, I got the chance to take Clay's course, which is single-handedly, I think, the best course offered at the business school and the one that really changes the way most people who take it think. It changed the way I think. It changed the way I see the world. And after the course, I got the opportunity to work with Clay. And he had a research institute at Harvard and subsequently the Clayton Christensen Institute, which is separate from the university. And we worked on a book together because he saw my interest in creating prosperity for many nations across the world. And he had always had a long-term interest in using innovation as a tool to help countries prosper. And so just that experience of taking his course, changing the way I think, getting to work with him deeply until he passed in 2020, I can say has shaped the direction of my life, much of what I do, much of how I think today. And I'm forever grateful for it. So can you talk to us a little bit more about, you know, you wrote a book called
0: Prosperity Paradox. You've got a TED Talk that has been viewed millions of times also on the topic. So it was my understanding is you kind of took disruption theory and Clay's thinking and you applied applied it not to steel mills, but you translate steel mills to
1: prosperity. Can you tell us how did that happen and what were the principles that you transferred over? When you think about an economy, it's incredibly complex. You've got so many different parts. Some are moving, some are not. You've got governments, corporations, schools, infrastructure, institutions, and it's just a hodgepodge of a bunch of things. And what we try to do was look at that and say, how do you get economies from poverty to prosperity? Is when you look at an economy and there's just a lot of moving parts and you look at what I would call the development industry, you know, folks who have dedicated their lives to helping poor countries prosper. They are trying to influence a lot of these moving parts I talked about, right? Like healthcare, you know, we're going to invest in healthcare. It's education. It's all about education. Or it's infrastructure, right? We have to build good roads and bridges and rail. And so they do this. But if we're honest with ourselves, Kahan, you'll see that we have not made the kind of progress I think we are capable as human beings of making in boosting economic prosperity and helping countries truly become independent. Now, this is not to say we have not made some kind of progress much of the metrics point to, you know, people are living longer and more kids are in school and things like that, right? However, much of those metrics are supported by aid dollars and donated dollars. And if you leave a country that's poor, say a big philanthropic organization leaves a poor country, you have to ask what's going to happen to their healthcare system and so on and so forth. So that's sort of setting the context. Clay and I and Karen Dillon, our co-authors, We looked at this from a different angle and we said, what is the lever you could pull to truly help you better manage all these components in an economy? And surprise, surprise, it's really innovation. And it's innovation within the context of what many of your listeners do, organizations private sector profit-seeking organizations. And one of the things we try to do is, you know, the word profit or for-profit sometimes could be synonymous with exploitation or it's like not good. But I often remind people, right, behind every non is a for-profit. You cannot spell nonprofit without profit. And whether it's the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, every single non out there doing good work is funded by a for-profit organization. And so we have to think about first principles. How did we become prosperous and how could we help other nations? What we found was innovation was at the core. But then what is innovation? Much like what is strategy. So what we try to do is demystify what innovation is. We categorize it into three main buckets. The first type of innovation we call efficiency innovations. These are innovations that help organizations do more with less. You think about outsourcing a particular activity from one place to another, or a lot of resource extraction industries that's efficiency based, right? Because the price of oil is a price of oil, so you want to extract as much as you can with fewer resources. This tends to release cash flows, but it doesn't quite create new growth engines for organizations. A second type are the most popular, which are sustaining innovations. Look around, look around your house to look around your office. There's sustaining innovations everywhere. These are innovations that help you make good products better. So when Apple releases a new iPhone with a better camera or Lexus releases their new car with adaptive cruise control and autonomous driving, those features are sustaining innovations. They tend to be targeted at people who can already afford products and services who are excited about new features, how to keep organizations vibrant because they remain relevant and exciting. You know, you don't want to be an engineer working on 15-year-old technology, you want to work at the latest and greatest. So they have value, but they tend to be substitutive in character. So if I buy an iPhone 11, I don't buy, you know, an 11S or something. And they're targeted at people who can already afford it. Now, the third type, which are the most difficult to execute and the most powerful are market-creating innovations. These are innovations. That transform complicated and expensive products into simple and affordable ones and essentially increase access. If you think about the evolution of the computing industry as an example, we started from mainframe computers, mini computers, microcomputers, personal computers, now we have computers <laughs> in our pockets today. Each evolution created a new market, made access available for many more people across the world. You think about even the automobile industry, think about how 120 years ago you had cars where like private jets for the rich are incredibly expensive. And then we had Henry Ford come into the scene and give us the Model T and essentially democratized access to cars. That's a market creating innovation. vision. But what you... Find is market creating innovations are the engines of growth for amazing organizations and for countries that have become prosperous. Is that because, I might be simplifying this too much, but when I'm hearing market creation
0: or what you sometimes call a non-consumption is, say, financial inclusion. You know, I mentioned my mom was living in Malawi. She's also her career in the UN and she was doing projects about getting people to adopt kind of freshwater principles, family planning principles. So there are these innovations or whatever that aren't being accessed or adopted. Is that the link between the market creating and prosperity or am I simplifying too much?
1: When you create a new market, so with efficiency and sustaining innovations, right, with efficiency, the focus is really on the process. With sustaining, the focus tends to be on the product because the product lives within a system that already exists. And so Apple doesn't need to build a new manufacturing plant, a new store, a new distribution channel in order to sell me, an existing consumer, the next version of the iPhone. However, when you create a new market, it's not just about the product or the process. It's about the people. It's about creating a new system, which causes you to hire new people to make the product because you're serving so many more people now to distribute the product, to market the product, to service the product. You are literally changing the way people consume certain products and services. People go about their work, go about their lives. And so if we use the computer as an example, if you were a mainframe computer manufacturer, you needed to sell a few of these products a year. You hired incredibly intelligent salespeople. The sales cycle was long. And you had a handful of customers that could buy it. When you're talking about selling a laptop or a desktop computer or a smartphone, think about the incredibly different system that you now to create in order to get your product from manufacturing floor to a consumer's home or office. It's in creating that system that creates jobs, it generates tax revenues for governments, and they are ultimately able to provide services for their people. That's the engine of prosperity. That's how we get it. Now, we're talking about this on a podcast, and you can sort of delineate very clearly what sustaining is, efficiency, and so on. But obviously, most organizations are more complex than that, economies are more complex, and organizations tend to manage a portfolio of innovations, right? you are not just doing one type of innovation, but hopefully this framework will allow people to ask, what are we prioritizing as an organization? Where do most Resources go. And there's no one innovation is right or wrong, but I think this language is just helpful to understand where your resources are going because that helps you predict what's to come.
0: Okay. So I've got a whole bunch of questions for you, but we're reaching the top of our time with you. There is one framework that I've heard you present at an event that several years ago, we were lucky enough to have you in. And let me be honest, I have one page in my speeches and I say it in like 30 seconds. I don't do it justice, but I'd love to hear you unfold this. You talked about this market creation where people are not accessing something or there's non-consumption and you laid out some of the reasons for that. Like often we think, oh, they just can't afford it. What are the reasons? that we can address to unlock this non-consumption or creating this
1: market? The barriers to consumption I often talk about, I got from a book written by Scott Anthony, who was also a student of Clay Christensen and prolific author, Innovator's Guide to Growth. Money is the most obvious one, right? You just look at people, they can't afford a certain thing. But access is another one where you've got someone who can afford a product, but whatever the product or service is, it's just not available. It's not easily available. Think about why we have formula shortages or, you know, toilet paper with the pandemic. Access is a big one. Skill is another one. What are you asking your consumers to learn in order to be able to access your product or service? And then time is another one. How much time are you asking them to give you? So those are the four dominant ones that Scott his team list in the book. One that has come to mind since the pandemic took root, I'm calling it culture. Because when you think about the COVID vaccines in America, easily the richest country in the world, we had the vaccines in record time, man, they were tested and they all seemed to work. The biggest mass experiment we've ever had in the world. Yet there were millions, tens of millions of Americans who chose not to to take the vaccine. It wasn't because of money. It wasn't because of access. It wasn't because of skill. Not stupid. It wasn't because of time. It was because of the cultural context in which they live. And so I think it would be good for organizations to think about that as they think about where are their products getting adopted and not adopted. Because I think understanding the culture in which you are trying to introduce a product is key.
0: Yes, which brings us, I think, right back to the question of prosperity. In observing my mother's work, that's been a big barrier is understanding and the culture and adapting the innovations to the culture or recognizing that the innovations aren't right for the culture.
1: Absolutely. Much of the way we are designed as human beings is to copy and paste, if you will. And so when something somewhere. It's just so easy to copy and paste it. I think we do that with the best of intentions. It requires so much more work to crawl into the lives of people and understand what they're going through so that you can actually truly help them. And I think from a strategy standpoint, there are instances where copy and paste could work. You know, if I step back and think of an organization, most organizations, your job is to discover and distribute. Some strategists would call this exploration and exploitation, manage this emergent and deliberate strategy. You know, you're an ambidextrous organization when you can do that. Well, for the distribution portion, which is where you're scaling a lot, you're exploiting, you already have the solution. You're just trying to get it out there. Copy and paste tends to work a lot better. Well, for the discovery, when the market's not yet quite created, when you don't really know enough about the people, I think it's important for us to crawl into their lives, understand what's going on, and then we discover before we distribute. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many implications and layers to that.
0: But I know we've reached our top of our time with you. How can people connect with you, learn from you, and continue learning from you if they're not living in Boston, and they're not at Harvard? How can we stay connected to you?
1: For as long as it remains with us, I am on Twitter. I'm not very active. <laughs> we never know. In other words, I don't live on the platform, but I am on the platform. Okay. Great. LinkedIn is another way yeah and i think if we can be helpful as an institute to any of your listeners we're happy to think through thorny innovation strategies great well if also, thank you so much for the work that you do
0: and for taking some time to sit here with us and unpack at least parts of it with us thank you very much for
1: being on the podcast Absolutely. thank you this was a lot of fun and i wish you all the best thank you so much guy thank you, you too
0: Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.